Alright, so thank you guys all for being here tonight. Um, so tonight we are going to be in Revelations chapters, Revelation chapter, seven, chapter 8 and 9. Um, and so to kind of start this off, for those of you who haven't been here the past few weeks or who just hadn't been here before at all, basically the past few weeks we've been talking about the, the seven seals on the scroll that God, that God presents before John. Um, there was this whole thing a few a few weeks ago that we talked about about how this this scroll was presented and everybody was like, hey, nobody nobody's worthy to open the scroll. Nobody's worthy to break the seals. Nobody can open this. And then um, and then we find and then it presents Jesus and it's like, hey, Jesus can open this. Jesus can do this. Jesus is the one who can break the seals and open the scroll. So then we talked about the first six seals being broken two weeks ago or three weeks ago, um, and last week. We spent some time in chapter 7, and basically what, what, what's happened up to this point is that in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, we saw the sixth seal being broken, and we see the end of heaven and earth. Like, the whole thing is destroyed, everything goes away, um, in order for God to usher in the new heaven and the new earth, for it to all be recreated. But then we kind of take a detour in chapter 7, where we get into this interlude in the story, where all of a sudden... John is explaining to us the position of the saints during all this. So it's essentially as if Jesus kind of kind of pauses the vision to show him, like, hey, this is what happens to all of you, like to all the saints, to, to all those who are following Christ. This is where you guys are in the midst of all this destruction and death. It's kind of this reminder that, that we've been sealed by God and that there's nothing that can hurt us outside of God's allowing it to happen. And so it's just this reminder for us, like, Hey, all of our hope can be in Christ because he is good and he loves us and he is not going to let anything happen to us outside of his control, outside of his sovereignty. So here's where it gets a little bit confusing is that today we're going to be in chapters 8 and 9. This is all about the seventh seal being broken. So the scroll is about to be opened. All of this is happening. But this doesn't take place after all of that. Okay, so don't, don't try and think about this like it's a chronological timeline. Instead, just think that this is... The, the past three chapters, chapters, the end of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapters 8 and 9, this is all happening at the same time. And it's just kind of different views of the same thing happening. So it's kind of, it's kind of as if we are getting a look into it from different angles. Chapter 6 was very much like just, just very broad. It was just very quick. It was just a few verses. It was like, hey, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens. Heaven and earth are destroyed. That's it. Chapter 7 was like, here's where the saints are during all of this. You know, we see God holding back the destruction until... Until all the saints are sealed, and then they come before God and they're worshiping Him and praising Him, and that flows into this. Where now we're really getting into what happens when heaven and earth are destroyed. What happens when the final seal is broken? Um, so we get into uh, the trumpets sounding and all of this stuff. But the goal that we need, what we need to understand here, is that the goal of Revelation is not. To give us a comprehensive view of the end times. Okay, we're not supposed to read this book and be like, "Oh, this is a this is a, an account of every single thing that's going to happen when the world ends." That's not the purpose of Revelation. The purpose is to help us see that Jesus is King and that He is going to return one day. It's meant to show us the character and the person of God, and it's meant to teach us how to view the fallen world around us and our own suffering through the lens of Christ and the fact that He reigns supreme above all. We have to remember the context this book was written in, that this book was written to Christians who were suffering at the hands of, of the government. They were suffering persecution. They were being arrested and killed, and the, the churches were being burned down. All this stuff was happening 
uh, around right by the Roman Empire at this time. And so this letter is being written to these Christians to remind them like, hey, no matter what happens to you on this earth, no matter what's going on, in the midst of the worst suffering and persecution you could possibly imagine, Christ is still on the throne. He is still supreme and he is sovereign over all. Essentially, what we need to grasp from this is that God is sovereign over all of history. And so that's the first point tonight is that God is sovereign over all of history. This is what we need to understand going into this passage is that everything that we're going to see here just shows us what God is sovereign over over and over again, how he is good, how he is, has authority over all things. And that's one of the things I love about this passage is that this really, really takes us into the depths, into the details of, of this whole idea of you know what's happening at the end times, what's happening at the end of the world and all this. But it's not about showing us how the world is going to end. Instead, it's showing us that in the midst of all of this death and despair, Christ is still on the throne and God is still sovereign. Even the seemingly bad things still point to his goodness. What we need to remember before we get into any of this is that it's not about how or even even when any of these things happen. Okay, That's not the point of the book of Revelation. It's about the sovereignty of God through it all. This is just meant to show us that we can still have hope in Christ in the midst of our suffering. So let's get into it. Starting in chapter 8, this is where we, we see the seventh seal broken. We kind of see all the things that happen. So in the beginning here, starting in verse 1, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So immediately here, what we see is that the seventh seal is opened and nothing happens right away. That's one, of, that's one of the first things that we see here is that seven seals opened and then everything gets silent, which is very different than what we saw at the end of chapter 7, where we see that not only is there the multitude of saints that are standing before God and praising him, but the, the elders are bowing down before him, the creatures and the beasts are bowing down before him, the angels are bowing down before him, and everyone is praising him as one. But then as soon as the seal is broken, everybody is silent. There's no more rejoicing. There's no more, there's no more praise coming from his people. It's all silent. There's no sounds. God's judgment of the world is preceded by half an hour of silence. And this is the only time that we ever see heaven described as silent. This shows you the significance of everything that's about to happen. Now, here's one of the first really interesting things that we see here. Okay, so in chapter 5, some of you may or may not remember this, but in chapter 5, we learned that the prayers of the saints are brought before God and that it's kind of represented by this, this bowl of incense, this golden altar of incense that comes before God so that, you know, when, when, the, when the aroma of the incense rises up, that's essentially representing the prayers of the saints before God. It was to remind us, like, hey, he hears our prayers. Like, they're constantly in front of him. He knows what we're crying out to him. So what we see here is that what I love about this moment in particular is that it's this incense that represents the prayers of the saints that's used to launch God's judgment on the world. 
Because we see the angel takes the incense and he throws it on earth. And that's what starts all this judgment. That's what starts everything that's about to happen. So it's actually the cries of God's people in the midst of their persecution and suffering that God uses as fuel for the fire that will destroy the, the wicked. See, the next point that we can see here is that God will avenge all persecution. God will avenge all persecution. We serve a God who loves us and cares about us. And even when we have to ask how much longer God will we suffer this, he's ready to say just a little bit more and it will all be made right. We know that we will be vindicated. We know that he is going to come for us and that he one day will strike down the people who hate us and who persecute Christians. And and we're going to be repaid for all of that that we that all the martyrs had to face, that all those persecuted Christians back in this first century had to face, and since then, all of that is going to be repaid. What we also see here, um, we also see that this, this kind of starts off. So the angel comes, he takes this, he throws it on earth, so it starts this judgment, and then there's immediately this reaction. There's the thunder, there's the lightning, there's the earthquake. Like There's this huge reaction that kind of signals what's about to happen to everyone. So then, picking up in verse 6, it says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and, the, and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And so essentially what we see here is that the first thing that we see here is that we see these angels blowing the trumpets before the judgment strike. And one, like, yes, this is them ushering in these judgments, but this is also them warning the people like, hey, you're about to face this judgment. Like there's something coming. They're blowing these trumpets to give the people time to repent before this happens. And yet they never do. God continues to restrain his full wrath. He continues to hold back on people. And that's going to be a theme that we see over and over again in these two chapters, is God continuing to show mercy and to hold back the full weight of his judgment. As over and over again, he gives people time to repent. He, he waits. He, he announces his judgment before he does it so that they know what's coming. First trumpet sounds, and we see fire and hail and blood thrown onto the earth. This calls back the seventh plague that faced the Egyptians um, back in Exodus. And it's important because God only allows a third of the trees on earth to be destroyed by this. Enough to cripple the world, but not to kill the world. And that's important. And so, again, we see his restraint. We, again, we see him. He could have destroyed everything on earth. He could, have, he could have killed everyone in that one moment. Instead, he chose to only destroy a third of the trees and the plants and all of this stuff. So that he was restraining, like he was, he was holding back so that, yeah, the world is crippled, but it's not destroyed. People can see the judgment of God, but he didn't kill everybody because of it. 
Then the second trumpet is described as ushering in what is probably a volcano, um, and it turns the water to blood, much like the first plague that Egypt faced. And again, this is a lot less about what actually will happen and more about God's judgment in general. I'm not saying that there won't actually be a volcano that comes up. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that this is more showing us the judgment of God and also his restraint in that judgment than anything. But again, um, all of this is heavily symbolic. And then the third trumpet ushers in something falling from the sky. Um, It's possible this is like a meteorite or something, something falling on the earth. We don't know exactly. But what we do know is that a third of all the rivers and springs and the springs of water are destroyed, enough to cripple again but not destroy the world. The fourth trumpet sounds when we see a third of our light, one of the very first gifts that God gave the world, one of the first things that he created. We see a third of that being destroyed, being taken away. This could be totally metaphorical. It could it could be a result of like smoke rising up from destruction. We don't really know, but we do know that what we see here is God continuing to take away things that he gave us in the first place, things that he gave us as a gift that we so often take for granted. But then in verse 13, it says, Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. What this shows us is that this, this first, the first four events that happen, okay, so the first four judgments that are brought on earth, they only indirectly hurt the sinners that are living here. Like people aren't being killed by the meteorite falling from the sky or by the volcano or by any of this. They're only being killed because the water is bitter and it's turned to blood or because, the, or because plants have been killed. Like they're only dying because of these things. So they're only indirectly being hurt by these judgments right now. But what this eagle is saying is, hey, everything that's about to happen is going to be God directly judging sinners for their crimes. What's next is going to be kind of an escalation of God's punishment on a rebellious humanity. The bottom line is is that, again, we see that God gives so much warning to them. So then we get into chapter 9. And picking up in verse 1, it says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings is like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as kings over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed and behold two more woes are still to come. So we see the fifth trumpet blasts and this, this... This calls down this fallen star from heaven to earth. 
Now, let me make this make a lot more sense for you guys really quick. So this fallen star refers to, that's Satan. Okay, so this fifth trumpet essentially calls in Satan, and God gives him the key to open the bottomless the shaft to the bottomless pit, which is hell, and unleash his demons all over the earth. So basically, this is literally, in this moment, we see we see this, this fifth trumpet blast, and then Satan comes in. God gives him the keys to hell so that he can open it up and allow what's described here as locusts to come out over the whole earth. Um, another thing that we see here is that these locusts are not actual locusts. They're just meant to represent this. It's calling back to the plagues of Egypt again. But this shows us something really encouraging. See, what we see here, the next point that I want to make here is that we see that Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. God is sovereign over Satan and the forces of evil, and he always has been. We see this in Job when Satan has to ask permission from God to torment Job. But we see here that there's nothing that Satan is allowed to do without first asking permission of God. And so God gives him the keys so, so he can unleash hell on earth, literally. And then we see these, these locusts that emerge from hell. And again, this is evoking the eighth plague from Egypt. However, again, these are not actually locusts. Like, this is just symbolic, representative of it. These are definitely, these are almost definitely representative of demons from hell. So, like, this is saying, like, he's essentially unleashing his demons on earth so that they can torment people and they can, they can attack them for months. Um, even in their descriptions, this is, it's, this doesn't sound like any locusts I've ever seen. We're talking about they have, like, human faces, but then they have teeth like lines and all this stuff. And, Again, this is not literally what they look like. It's just symbolic. This is to tell us about their attributes. Like, hey, they look like humans, so they're deceitful. You know, we would, we would see them and think they were us. But then also they have these crowns of gold on their head that makes them appealing to people. And we see that they, you know, they're, they're kind of like horses that are ready for battle because they're ready to wage war on our lives. And we see that they, they have teeth like a lion because they're actually really dangerous for us. And so, and we see they have these tails like scorpions, like, we see all these descriptors of them that show us what we are facing and what, what these demons are coming here to do and makes their intentions very clear here. Um, talks about them being here for a period of five months. We don't know if that's actually five months, but it just represents like a, a period of time. But the bottom line is, is that God is essentially giving these demons free roam over the earth for this amount of time. And so Satan here is also referred to as... Um, Abaddon and Apollon, which just translates to destruction and the one who destroys. But see, there are two really important things that we need to grasp from this passage. First, these demons are not allowed to kill anybody. In fact, we see people here who are begging for death. They're begging to be killed, and still it is not granted to them. People are not dying from these demons. They're just being tormented and tortured for this period of time. And this is important because this is, once again, God is giving them time to repent. He's basically like giving them a little preview. He's like, hey, this is what eternity is going to look like apart from me. You still have time to repent. There's still time for you to turn from your sins and follow me. And I think it's ironic here because this really shows the heights of their foolishness that they would asked to be killed. Essentially, they're like, no, I think eternity in hell would be better than the, the far lesser torment of being here on earth. But again, 
God is showing restraint here by not killing them outright, even though he should. He's, he's given Satan this power to torment their lives, but again, he is sovereign over Satan. He's saying, hey, you can't kill them yet. The second and most important thing that we see here is that they were not allowed to harm those with the seal of God on their foreheads. In chapter 7, we talked about how God seals his people so that they don't face this destruction. They don't face this judgment. Okay, When, when the seals are on their foreheads, they are protected, and only God can break that seal because he's the one who put it there. That's what makes this so important is that they were given power to touch anybody on the earth except for those with the seal of God. So one, this means that, that us, the people of God, are safe from this torment. But two, this shows you the power of God over the forces of evil, over Satan, over all of these things. That there's nothing that they can do apart from God and his permission. This shows us God, who again is sovereign over Satan. And so, this is why it is so important. This is what it means for us that we put our hope in Christ and Christ alone because Christ is the only one who can overcome the forces of evil in this world. Christ is the only one that we can rely on. There's nothing else in this world that can save us from anything that's coming, from the judgment of God, from the the forces of Satan, from the coming disasters, from any of the stuff that's described here. There's nothing in this world that can save us apart from Christ himself. So then finally we we get to the sixth trumpet. Verse 13, it picks up and it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their numbers. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And and fire and smoke and sulfur came from their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. So we get to the sixth trumpet. We see a voice crying out to release these angels that are bound. This is where we see God finally enacting his full judgment on the earth, except not on the full earth just yet. Because once again, he's only allowing them to kill a third of the people on earth. Despite the fact that many more of them deserve this death and deserve this punishment, he still continues to hold back and show this restraint. He's withheld his judgment for so long to allow time for repentance. Over and over again, we see his his withholding of this judgment, his extending of mercy over and over again up until the very end. And we've seen this imagery before of these horses and the riders and they're red and they're the color of fire and, and they're standing on these horses and they're coming to bring death and destruction with them. And so in all of this, we see them coming in horse, you know, there's, there's a description of like their heads are like lions, their tails are like serpents. It's not actually what they look like. It's just, it's just meant to be symbolic to show you how dangerous they are, to show you the kind of, uh, the kind of forces that God is releasing on this earth. And I also think it's interesting here that it's angels that God, that has, that have been held back by God that are finally released to bring about these armies 
upon the world to destroy it. But now, despite all of this, let's read the last two verses here, probably some of the most important verses that we're going to read here. In verse, verses 20 and 21, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. See, what we see here is that despite everything that happens already, they've seen a third of the earth be destroyed in so many different ways. Now, finally, a third of all of humanity has been wiped out. And still, despite all of this, despite seeing and feeling the weight of the judgment of God, the wicked still refuse to repent. And they don't just refuse to repent of like one or two things. They refuse to repent of everything that they are doing. This passage really helps us to see the depths of God's mercy. That's the last point here. It really helps us to see the depths of God's mercy. We see God's mercy in the fact that these people refuse to repent despite everything that's happening to them. And and everything that's happening all around them. And it's, it's like, how could you, how could they get more ignorant than this? Is that they've seen the full weight of the destruction of God. And they've also seen his mercy and that multiple times he has held back and given them the opportunity to repent. And they still say, no, we want to live in our sins. We want to stay where we are. We know there's something better. We don't care. God is infinitely more patient than we are. And holds back this obviously disturbed obviously deserved destruction in order to get them to repent over and over again. If someone ever asks you why a good God would send people to hell, this this is one of the best places to take them, to show them that even those that God didn't set aside for salvation, that he didn't seal, he still gave them every single opportunity to repent and called them to himself, and yet they still chose to live in their sins. They had every evidence of God and who he is and his goodness and his mercy and also his great wrath and still chose to live in their sins. It's heartbreaking, frustrating, and eye-opening all at the same time when we read passages like this and realize that people deserve the judgment that's coming to them. But I think it's important for us to let this entire passage serve as a reminder to us of God's sovereignty and his mercy over all things. The God who is sovereign over all of history and over Satan and over death and over the forces of evil and over, over calamity and destruction and all things. He's sovereign over all of it. And yet he still takes the time to love us and to care for us. We should let our lives be guided by the truth, by the understanding of his truth and his love for us. And we should let our hope be in Christ and Christ alone only. Let's pray. God, you are so good and righteous and holy. We see your goodness all around us every single day. God, we don't don't even know what it is that you may be protecting us from right now, but God, we know that you have have promised to protect us and that your word says over and over again that you are will protect us, that you will shield us from evil. God, we know that you are sovereign over all things, that we can put our hope and trust in you. 
And that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what kind of suffering we face, no matter how bad things get, you are still good and you are still Lord of all and you are still on the throne. God, I thank you that we can come here tonight, that we can, we can gather together around your word and to learn from you. And God, I thank you that you have so much to teach us still, that your word is living and active. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the truth and in the love that you have shown to all of us. God, help us to glorify you in every single thing that we do. And help us to be bold to live out what you have called us to live. And I pray all of this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.